Today we consider what it means to receive the prophetic word, to offer providential praise, and to participate in a love that never ends. The prophetic book of Jeremiah begins with an account of Jeremiah's call to be the Lord's spokesman. The prophet recounts, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over other nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build, and to plant. In this call of Jeremiah, we see the prophetic word is never an accident. In his sovereignty, the Lord prepares both the message and the messenger for his verbal communication. Jeremiah is not too young, because the Lord has known him from his earliest seconds as a human being. He is not without words, because the Lord himself will put a prophetic message in Jeremiah's mouth. His difficult task will be to speak truth to power, He will give a word of judgment to those who reject God and His ways, and He will deliver a thread of hope for those who cling to the Lord's promises of a new covenant, even as the old covenant fails in the disaster of exile. In a striking way, too, Jeremiah's call echoes the call of Moses at the burning bush. There, Moses also objects to what the Lord is appointing. Moses questions his own suitability for so great a task. The Lord replies that he will be with him, and that's all that matters. The Lord is the great I Am, who keeps His promises and is mighty to save. Moses questions whether the people will believe in Him, and the Lord previews the signs and wonders He will accomplish in the exodus from the Egypt. Moses says he's not good with words. The Lord says that He will give him speech. Moses then straight up asks God to send someone else. The Lord then brings Moses, Aaron, and tells Moses to get on with his prophetic task in obedience. By echoing the call of Moses, the prophetic author characterizes Jeremiah as a kind of new Moses who will speak true words from the Lord himself, words of both salvation and judgment, blessings for obedience, and curses for disobedience. The Lord brings about his purposes in both exodus and exile through his mighty deeds and effective words. In the opening of Jeremiah, we see a prophetic word prepared by the Lord for the prophet. In Psalm 71, we see a personal word of the psalmist that draws on hope and comfort from the Lord's providence. The psalmist is young, but the Lord has prepared him for this praise. The psalmist writes, In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. 
The Lord had told Jeremiah that he was prepared and known before he was even born. Similarly, the psalmist connects his current refuge in the Lord's protection to the history of faithfulness in the Lord's providence in his own life. The psalmist reflects on the sovereign hand of the Lord from his earliest moments. In the womb, he was formed and given life. In his youth, he was guided and given hope. Later in the psalm, the psalmist envisions himself as an old man whose enemies taunt him with the possibility that God has forsaken him. He responds with a declaration of his intentions to endure in his trust and confession of the Lord's sovereignty in his life. He writes, As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, Sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your mighty deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all those who are to come. Either in prophecy or poetry, the sovereignty of the Lord is the means by which the prophet and poet are able to speak the Lord's words and praise the Lord's worth. In the reading from 1 Corinthians 13, Paul shows us that God not only prepares us to receive his word and sing his praise, but also to love. This chapter is well known and famous for its lengthy exposition of what love is and what love does. Often neglected, though, is the context of 1 Corinthians 12-14, through In these chapters, Paul speaks of the sovereignty of the Spirit in the Christian confession that Jesus is Lord, and also in the distribution of spiritual gifts. Right before the love chapter, Paul extends the metaphor of the church as the body of Christ with many members. Right after this chapter, Paul discusses the necessity of order and unity in the congregation that employs the gifts of the Spirit. Paul's exposition of love, therefore, is not a removable rumination that is unrelated to these issues embedded within these theologically loaded discussions. Love is directly connected to the sovereignty of the Spirit, the life of the churches, and the individual believer's relationship with God. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the fullness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. 
for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. With these words, Paul provides an anchor that can keep a believer or a congregation from drifting to and fro during hardship or theological disagreement. In the flow of these chapters, this radically reorienting disposition marked by love is generated, governed, and guided by the person of the Holy Spirit. It's because of the sovereignty of the Spirit, rather than the emotional consistency of the believer, that love never ends. The longevity of love is prompted and preserved by the Lord himself. To love is to participate in a supernatural act that is enabled by the Spirit of Christ. By the fellowship of the Spirit, we are able to receive the prophetic word of salvation and judgment, to offer personal words of praise and devotion, and to love in a way that serves our neighbor and exalts our God. Praise the Lord for his grace.